0: On today's show, I'll be speaking with David Scobie. So for the last 20 years, David has worked to advance the democratic purposes of higher education. In his writing, teaching, and programmatic initiatives, he has sought to build bridges between academic and public work, especially through the integration of community engagement into liberal education and the full inclusion of non-traditional students in higher education. Much of his recent research centers on non-traditional undergrads, the large majority of U.S. college students, and their importance to the future of higher education. David has a Ph.D. from the Program in American Studies at Yale University, a Diploma in Social Anthropology from the University of Oxford, and a B.A. in English Literature from Yale University. So let's welcome David Scobie to the show today, And let's get on into it. Welcome to Reboot Higher Ed. I'm here today with David Scobie and David, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for your time. Now, David, I know a lot of your focus, um, your, in some of your past projects, has been working with non-traditional students. So before you go, we go straight into the past projects. Uh, I'd like the audience to get to know you a little bit better, and just how did you, you know, how did you get to the point where that became a focus of yours um, in working with the non-traditional students? And uh, then yes, please let's talk about some of the the past projects that you have been involved with. Terrific! Uh, I'd
1: love to. I- I'm a uh, a humanist, a cultural historian by training. Uh, I spent about 20 or 25 years as a faculty member teaching history and American studies. Uh, in the course of that, I became very committed to community engagement and publicly engaged higher ed uh, and started programs and then a center at Bates College uh, and finally was the dean of a division of public engagement at the new school uh, at, at experimental university in new york city uh and it was there that the nickel dropped for me about the importance of non-traditional students adult working parenting students uh and i have to say i've been basically clueless about how much of the american student body was non-traditional and even more clueless about their needs but the New School was, is a, a university with a particular history of commitment to non-traditional students. And those students kind of schooled me about who they were and how important they were. Uh, and when I realized uh, that non-traditional students are really the majority of American college students in total, uh, I knew that that was sort of the, the next commitment of public engagement that I wanted to make. So when I stepped down from being a dean, uh, I committed myself to research and advocacy and to learning about and and with non-traditional students.
0: That's great. Um, You know, David, I know that you've, I've read uh, a few different articles you've published and uh, that that focus on the non-traditional. I I can tell you some of it works with that student base uh, always a breath of fresh air because it is sometimes the forgotten about student population. Would you agree? I totally agree.
1: I think uh, once once I came to learn more about the scope of of non-traditional students and also their lives and needs, I think they're forgotten about in two different ways. In in many mainstream institutions, they're simply ignored, even when they enroll in big numbers. They're they're kind of in, invisible in terms of uh, student support and the training of teachers and even the hours that uh, offices are open. Um, but they're also invisible in a second way. When When people understand how numerous and how important adult working students are to higher ed, it's often assumed that all they want is kind of quick and dirty workforce training and that improving their job prospects are the only thing that matters as quickly and cheaply as possible. And like all students, they have economic needs and pressures and aspirations. Uh, but the richness and complexity of their lives uh, and their aspirations for higher ed is often misunderstood and that's a second kind of being forgotten or being
0: invisible. There's a there are those barriers that we discuss with the non-traditional the adult learner coming back in my work with many adult students, the desire to come back can be very strong, but there are those barriers, financial barriers, and also time and cost those are those are I think those are understood barriers. I'd like others to hear uh, some of your take on. The um, the barriers of I'll bring up one right away that I see uh, constantly, and that is I owe another school some money Mm -hmm. and I can't come back to your institution to for degree completion because, well, I can't get my official transcripts until I pay that university off. What's your experience with that? And have you spoken with any schools or worked on any projects uh, to be working the solution of that barrier?
1: Let me, let me split those questions, that question into two, sort of how I came to recognize it and what are some of the ways people are trying to solve it. Um, This was also something that that I had been a bit clueless about uh, until my work with and my research on and my interviewing of uh, non-traditional students kept turning up stories about um, either I'd like to go back to school or it was hell for me to go back to school because a previous, uh, institution where I owed some money was blocking my transcripts. Now that those bursar holds, as they were called, that refusal to release prior credits and transcripts is standard practice across higher ed. Uh, what I hadn't realized is, especially in the last 10 years, how widespread the the owing of institutional debt to to colleges is, uh, but also how small the debts are. Uh, So as I began to do research, and I I wrote a piece about this from inside higher education called The Other Student Debt Crisis, uh, I I realized that every year among current students, about 30% of students end the year owing debts to their college. It could be tuition, it could be library fees, it could be even parking tickets. Uh, on average, they owe about five to 10% of the cost of the tuition or and, and fees for that year. So relatively small, doable amounts. And a very large number of students either drop out on their own volition because of these pressures or are forced to drop out by the institution. Uh, uh, and once that happens, the institution locks up all of the credits that they have earned and paid for in the past uh, uh, so that you could have, been in the middle of your second and third year of college, uh, have a lot of credits that you've earned. You're in academic good standing. Uh, you you paid for the past credits, but because you owe a debt of $500, you are basically locked out of progress and even being able to show your transcript to an employer, uh, which strikes me as not just unjust, but kind of dumb. It it prevents the student from completing his or her education and advancing. It prevents the academic institution they may want to attend from future tuition dollars and the pride in graduating another student. And it turns out this institutional debt crisis is way larger than we expected. Uh, I estimated that of the 35 or so million Americans who have stopped out with some college credits but not yet a degree, something like five or six million of them, my conservative estimate, are blocked from completing their education by this kind of debt. So there's also student loan debt issues and the work and time pressure barriers that you just referenced, and also really important emotional barriers that are worth talking about. But this turns out, this question of uh, debt that you owed your college in the past, turns out to be a a really important stumbling block uh, in helping students succeed and, and get their education.
0: You know, one of the things that comes to mind when I I hear hear you speak about this is there's there are there are many out there with the some college, no degree that we have the in the adult category of students. Uh, Is it with coming back when you're trying to get into another university, would it be easier or more beneficial for that student to go back to that university they had left to try to re-enter? And work out their debt, or sometimes I know maybe because of location and logistics, you know they uh-huh. are they are in a different area where they need to either look online or another school that you know that needs all new documents and then also mm-hmm. official documents from the school. They have a balance app. I wonder is it best to go Sorry. back to go to that school mm-hmm. or do you? You know in is a school you know do we need to be looking at, hey, who are these students? Can we reach back out to them, and is there a certain dollar amount that you know we can look to forgive? I know you've worked with some projects regarding this, and I just uh, I'd like you to i like you to share share with me uh and, and others uh, some solutions um for those students
1: well, let me tell you <clears throat> some policy ideas that that I support, and then give you one really exciting example of what one campus is doing. Uh, I actually think that uh, as in higher ed as a whole, we need to change the norm of the bursar's hold. We need to uh, be willing to release all the grades and all the credits that students have earned and paid for, even if in their last semester they owe debt. I also think we need to have financial incentive for encouraging students to come back and to complete. You could imagine what some of them might be. You might discount that outlying debt from semester to semester as students make progress. You might have a completion grant as a student uh, nears the the, uh, the completion of, of their degree program. Uh, you could have periodic debt forgiveness um we it's it's way better for a student and actually much better for the institution to to come back to school and to graduate than to hold the debt over their head and It turns out that the worry that uh that many academic administrators have in doing this, the worry that Forgiving or discounting people's past debts will encourage the next student not to pay their bills. Uh, has not been borne out. In fact, uh, there's been several studies that show that this problem of of, um, uh, of so-called moral hazard that you're encouraging bad behavior on the part of students in the future uh, hasn't turned out to be true. And you could combine this kind of debt forgiveness or discounting with Um, financial literacy programs, things that would benefit students uh, as well. So those are some general ideas. Now onto the example that's uh, a really interesting real-time experiment. Wayne State University has just launched a program called Warrior Way Back. I think the Warriors is the the name of the the moniker of Wayne State students. Uh, They've reached out to their own alums, or sorry, their own stopouts who uh, left Wayne State with credits but no degree to encourage them to come back with some financial incentives uh, for doing so. Um, And equally important, they've combined this effort at um, small grants and and forgiveness of uh, parts of past debt with With three other things. One is student services aimed specifically to support adult working students, uh, which who often have different needs uh, and um, need different kinds of mentoring and service support from traditional age students. That's the first thing they added, they layered on. The second thing is uh, the launch of a set of academic pathways, often combining. Liberal learning with professional or career pathways uh, that are of particular interest to adult students. And the third is the launch of an adult learners' working community where peer support can, can help students uh, with, with success. So, Warrior Way Back is impressive to me because it, it combines this very brass tacks with, uh, understanding of the problem of institutional debt with academic and personal supports as well
0: yeah that sounds like a I mean, that that's a lot of uh, work that it sounds like at one end for that focus of the, the adult learner uh, at Wayne well, State it, so. it, it builds on
1: really great work that has been done by uh, Georgia State is well known for this and the University Innovation Alliance for how you support traditional students in school getting to the finish line and not having to stop out and I think Wayne State takes it the next step, which is to say, let's take these ideas of kind of holistic support, including financial support, uh, and apply it to returning adult learners.
0: What what are some main characteristics that universities can be looking at when saying, are we adult friendly? What are what are some key elements that, that uh, that need to be looked at. I think all, often the, you know, it's hours of operation, of course. But what are some other things that maybe need a little bit more light shed on them with the adult learner coming back?
1: That's a great question. And you're right that, that we need what could be called sort of infrastructural supports, classes and uh, office hours at, at appropriate times for working and parenting uh, students. We need the kind of creative financial support that we've just been talking about, which often extends uh, beyond simple tuition aid. Uh, adult learners may need childcare, may need emergency small grants. I've heard stories about uh, students whose semester was completely disabled by uh, a car crisis, uh, a repair that that uh, they simply couldn't afford to. So adult learners, often have needs that aren't so expensive, but are as complex as the lives they're leading, and, and that is needed. But beyond that, I would add two things that are often not in the conversation about the needs of non-traditional students. One is uh, training faculty to understand the lives of adult learners uh, and to listen to them, uh, and not simply assume they need to fit into the way I'm used to teaching students, which takes the traditional age post high schooler as the norm. Uh, I think that listening on the part of faculty and that attention um, partly has to do with uh, understanding the stressors of the different roles of work and parenting and community life, but it also has to do with um, an understanding that uh, adult learners. Um, are often looking to connect their learning with their life in a more direct way than uh, than traditional age students who are simply used to letting the teacher define the agenda of learning. Sometimes that connection of learning to life can mean they want to know how it fits into their work life, into their economic prospects. But I mean it in a broader way than that. Uh, I mean if, if you're teaching Plato's Republic, frame it up uh, in a way that makes the the, um, the themes and the questions that you want to have as part of the classroom flow from and pay attention to the lives of the students uh, in front of you. I think if you start with where uh, learners are in their lives, adult learners especially, uh you can actually make it make the learning even more transformative by the end. There's a there's a wonderful saying that, that I know in a over a theater that I've gone to uh which is um come as you are, go away, changed. And I think that's a really good motto for thinking about how non-traditional students learn. So that's that's the one new theme I think we need to pay attention to. I think the other one is to understand how important peer support is for adult learners, and I think for all marginalized students. Uh, the the adult-serving programs that I know that are most vibrant and successful, that graduate students uh, you know, with 80 to 90% graduation rate, do that because they build rituals and a, and a vibe in which students know each other and support each other and simply won't let each other fail. If someone doesn't show up for class because of that childcare crisis or the car repair, the other students in these programs will call them up and say, how can I help? And that emphasis on welcome and peer support turns out to be a really important part of the secret sauce, as important as the the financial support and uh, the student services as important as those are. So I would say that that bundle of things, support, financial aid, but also teaching and learning that starts from the lives of these students but doesn't end there, and a culture and a climate of support both from teachers and mentors, but also from peers.
0: That peer support that you just uh, stated It seems that to me, that really hits home because one of the things that I have noticed in uh, some of my research and just working in the environment is adult students can enroll and begin in your university and fly completely under the radar of any type of retention alerts and infrastructure you have supporting mainly their traditional students. So that peer support is gonna be a huge piece because sometimes you know they're forgotten about sometimes when we're looking at our um, just our overall culture but also with the wraparound services after enrollment and once they begin uh, their courses so i think that's a, a a big piece of it you know david I'm i, so I gl- I've been, go ahead i'm so glad you read that i just want to check into your second
1: and and um and add one more thought um this is one of the reasons why Online learning is a mixed blessing for uh, adult working students. And when some adult students, like all students, are great at the kind of self-starting and make your own way and make your own hours that uh, uh, much of online learning calls for. But if you're gonna make online teaching learning work for adult learners, you have to go the extra mile in setting up the kind of peer community that we're talking about. Uh, it can be done online but it's way easier with face-to-face learning.
0: Those are very great points and I think as uh, us that work in the enrollment world and and uh, the four-year university it's it's bigger than just hey there's a lot of some college no degree students go out there and get them. I think we have to look internally and say why aren't they here and do we need to start embodying what we're seeking and looking inside and saying, hey, so there's probably a reason, it's not just marketing that we don't have adult students on our campus.
1: So- That's exactly right. And we know from underserved traditional students, uh, first-gen students, uh, students of color, that just access going out and finding, and even warmly welcoming an orientation day, those students isn't enough. You need to kind of redesign the experience to support their aspirations so that they succeed. That's equally true, if not more so, with adult working
0: students. Definitely. Well, David, I'll, I want to let's uh, before we run out of time. I'd like to talk about your, your current work. Um, sure. You Currently, uh, are in a role uh, as a director of bringing theory to practice, uh, which is a Washington D.C. based project. Uh, tell the listeners a little bit more about uh, uh, bringing theory to practice
1: thanks so much for asking about that Paul uh, bringing theory to practice is a fifteen year old project it's it's in partnership with the association of American colleges uh, and universities but but is is its own autonomous initiative uh, and I would say its mission is both kind of old school and foundational on the one hand and radical and transformative on the other. Our mission is to renew and advance the core purposes of undergraduate education through innovation and and institutional change. And those core purposes uh, are active and integrative learning, education for democratic citizenship, preparation for meaningful work, and also, to come back to a theme we've been talking about, the well-being and the thriving uh, of the whole student. And we are particularly committed to advancing the foundational purposes of college uh, for all students, to make sure that uh, that there's an inclusive and equitable uh, uh, academy uh, that, that makes available these per- purposes and, and gives all students access to the traditional, non-traditional, rich, poor students of every background, um, and that we find innovative ways of providing that education in a time when, when higher ed is under great stress and, and is undergoing a lot of change. So m- renewing values that are very familiar to us but doing it in kind of radical and innovative ways. We've given grants to 350 different campuses to support this work over the past 15 years. And uh, I've just taken over as as the the new director of the project and we're putting a special emphasis on collaborative multi-campus work that can spread best practices and and launch innovative experiments. And just to tie it back to what we have been talking about, um, I would say that the project hasn't focused so much on adult non-traditional students. And one of the themes uh, that that I hope we will take on a project and bring theory to practice is what great engaged transformative education looks like for non-traditional learners.
0: Well, it sounds like there's definitely more to come with uh, bringing theory to practice. It's a definitely a work in progress. Would you agree? I I would. It, it's got
1: uh, a a strong uh, record of achievement in the the first fifteen years, mm-hmm. but during that time, higher ed has changed a lot. So we are we're bringing to bear that commitment to core purposes. To take on the new challenges and changes that are loyal in higher education.
0: Yes, higher ed has changed a lot. The the world's changed a lot. But with non traditional students, I think we always need that, you know, those uh, reminder dings that go off on our smartphones sometimes that need like a large one at every university to say, hey, when you're having these conversations about growth, change, building academic programs, uh, let's think about the community that we're looking to serve, the pathway here, and then what's the end result, Uh, not just for the traditional students, but for those non-traditional students as well. That little ding needs to go off in a lot of uh, uh, some of the silos that might exist at many universities.
1: I totally agree. And, And I'd add a second ding, which is when you have that conversation, and God bless you for having it, Make sure you start by asking non-traditional students themselves what they think of their lives and their needs and their aspirations.
0: That's great, David, and thanks for being on the show today. I I want the listeners to know if they want to learn more about bringing theory to practice and how they can get involved or support. uh, How could they? How could they do that? Uh, Thanks for asking. Um, Come to our website at
1: b t t-o-p b-t-t-o-p dot org uh sign up uh to be part of our listserv we have a lot of information that that goes back to thousands of 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 friends and allies and participants and they should absolutely feel free to email me at scoby at b-t-t-o-p b-t-t-o-p dot org
0: that's thank you david and i will have that information as well as some links to some other topics we discussed um, and articles that and projects David has been involved in uh, the show notes. So David, uh, thank you again so much for your time and then also for your leadership in that walk that you're that you've been taking for quite a long time. I know a lot of listeners and myself greatly appreciate that. Thanks, Paul, and thanks for the podcast. It's really important. Thank you, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Reboot Higher Ed, and have a great rest of your day. I hope today's content was valuable to you. If so, I'd like to ask you to leave me a review, because with your review, I will be able to rank higher in iTunes and reach more people. The more people my podcast can reach, the more energy I will be able to devote to creating great content for you and for future subscribers of Reboot Higher Ed. Thanks for tuning in today and have a great rest of your week.